Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome again to this week's podcast, Irish Missionary Stories. This week I've selected a number of interviews taken from a collection that I did in 2011 with returned missionaries. These were ordinary people coming from the countryside and at a very young age signed up to go on the missions. You'll find these stories fascinating because of the mental strength that these people had to face danger head on the courage to deal with situations in war and torn countries and where famine was going on, as well as social injustices. And we start with Brother Benignus Buckley. He grew up in the 1930s in Kilkenny. He joined the Capuchin Franciscan Order in 1951. But I first asked him what part of Kilkenny he grew up in. I grew up in Kilmana, just about eight miles from, from Kilkenny here. In a small farm, there was 12 of us. Father and mother worked hard. Uh, we were up early in the morning to pulp the uh, turnips and mangoes for the cows and the horses and uh, do the milking and all that and clean up before we went to school. And uh, Where did you fit in? in the? Tw- I was number 10. <laughs> and the clothes were passed down from, from one to the other. So by the time they reached me, it would be very hard to find the original patch. <laughs> in the trousers but that's how everything you yeah. know they were, it's just those people they were the salt of the earth I mean remember now it was in Ireland where there was no electricity no running water a pump in the yard we lined up and washed our faces in the pump before we went to school that was the, the and drawn well and drawn water from it day in and day out in 1959 he was appointed to South Africa and his assignment was to a station near the Angolan border. I was transferred then to a place called Mangango, which was down kind of in the centre of, of Baratsiland. And I spent, uh, was it 14 years there? And then I was, after that, then I was transferred to look after refugees uh, in a place called Sioma. That was on the Angola border, and I spent 17 years there. In the 1980s, into the 90s, he was working in a mission down in Sioma during the 10-year war with South Africa. And here he describes the awful circumstances that he found himself in. 
we had to see when the wars of liberation from Angola started speeding into the western province, which was part of our diocese. Yeah. And I was in the mission, the only mission there in Sioma, with the two other friars and and five nuns. And they started mining all the, 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 the pathways and roads and people having their legs blown off and stuff like that. And started coming in in, heli- in gunship helicopters and all that. What year was this? This was in the 80s. Okay. And into the nineties, and this, so this was the third mission you yeah, were on in in Sioma. That was the most difficult because when I went there in nineteen eighty, the mission had practically closed down. The priest had to be was drawn pulled out of because the South Africans had threatened him, hmm. and uh, they surrounded the nuns' uh, convent and uh, and the uh, clinic a couple of times because they said you're treating the Swapo, the enemy. And like, I mean, we had a, a regulation, a rule. When anybody came, whether he was black or white, we never asked him, where, where, what, what, uh, what side are you on? Or anything, any questions like that. We just treated him and he went off. We, we, we didn't ask any, any questions. And if a person needed help, we gave them that help. And we told the South Africans that. That's how we work. Would you have taken sides, though? We had to take the side of the Africans because we were living with them, and we, and uh, and the point of, what was the use in taking the sides of of a of a of a, of, a, of, a, of South Africa when they were out, you know, in very a very destructive mission. Like I mean, when you think of it, they had tanks, they had gunship helicopters, they had MiG fighters. They used to knock the cross off the church because their church was a landmark for them, and go up and bomb the pontoon. And every damn time they'd be flying over, the cross would fall over. No, but you see, what the poor Africans had, yeah. you know, they wouldn't have anything like that. And you you spoke about mines. I mean, this must have been really... Uh, did you find it uh, it hemmed you in? or it, 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 Well, there it, were certain areas, uh, what we, the old paths that you used to use, you couldn't use them. So we had to cut our way through forest virgin forest, and hope that... But I'll tell you one thing. I was travelling with an army officer, going out to a clinic and then I, and, and to say mass. And uh, I had gone over this place 101 times. And this fellow st- stopped, he said, froze. And I said, what, what's wrong? He said, you see the tripwire? I didn't see any tripwire. But you see, it was, it was a mine that would only go off when a certain weight hit it. Oh, yeah. And it was a lot, they were waiting for the army lorries to, 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 be, to, 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 be, to blow them up. But I had a jeep, a pickup, little pickup jeep, and that was able to go over without, without triggering it and letting it off. He worked with refugees for the 10 years during the war there. We had 93,000 refugees in the parish and feeding them and looking after them and and caring for them and coming from Angola, yeah, poor creatures had to come across the that big swamp, yeah. the Kwanda River swamp. They were being they were being shelled and bombed from the air by by, by the South Africans and these gunship helicopters and MiG jets. So they didn't know what was going on. They weren't involved in any of that. They'd come over to us, and all they had was the clothes on their backs. Now they had to come across swamps that were crocodile infested. Yeah, how many of them were lost? There'd be people there for days waiting to see if another member of the family made it. 
So that was, that was horrendous. What did you do to save them? Uh, to feed How them. did you manage them? Feed that many people? Feed them. With what? With, we, got, we, we were able to... The army, the Zambian army, were able to give us lorries and, and, uh, and what do you call it, and uh, helicopters to bring out food. Yeah. We had that food. We were able to buy food uh, from, from, up from Zimbabwe and those places. While working under terrible conditions, to keep sane, he saw the funny side. And, and shit and take it out by lorry. Tractors. Funny example, a funny thing happened when one of the drivers. He had, he had one of these tractors, you see, and the roads were so sandy. You, you, you needn't, you just put the wheels into the track and it'll go off. But anyway, he had it on manual. <laughs> he had it on manual. And the next thing was a MiG jet came over, he flew over him. And of course, he jumped off it. And about uh, two, he had to run two or three miles to catch the tractor. The tractor kept going <laughs> with the load of, with the load, and we had a Red Cross uh, flag on it. But the South Africans came in to, to me and told me, you know, the Red, that Red Cross won't save you. Michael Healy, born in 1921 in County Cork, joined the Colombian Fathers in 1944, and in 1947. His mission was to China. But I first asked Michael what part of the county did he grow up in? The parish of Ahabulug. Uh, it was um, Clanmile was the townland. Clanmile, Coachford, uh, County Cork. Okay, so you're a Cork man. And, yeah. Uh, your, your father, was he a farmer? Or? Farmer. We were uh, eight in family, six boys and two girls. And uh, the two of us became Columbans. Uh, one brother was about five years ahead of me. He worked in the Philippines. After World War II, Michael's mission was China. And he worked near Shanghai City. And he explains here that there wasn't really much training for missionaries going to China at that time. And he describes in some detail here how he and his other priests survived captivity while under communist rule. We never had any preparation like soldiers who were captured in Korea, you know, they were briefed beforehand uh, what uh, the communist indoctrination would be like if they got it, but yeah. we, we just, but we all tumbled to the fact pretty quickly that the real dangerous time was when you were sent off after an uh, interrogation, which was brainwashing really, uh, you were sent off to reflect on what was done and come back and humbly confess your crimes and they'd be merciful with you yeah. and uh, all the rest. But there was no mercy for anyone who refused to, uh, obstinate, who refused to confess. You see, they wanted you to admit crimes against the state and expel, you see. So, and propaganda purposes also, you know, they did that. So, we all realized very quickly that the dangerous time was when you were sent off to reflect. And um, each one tumbled to their own. Well, in my own case, if, uh, Aidan McGrath, who was in Ward Road Jail, he, uh, they thought they had him. He was reading the propaganda, and he was, he was um, 
learning the characters. He was uh, uh, he was good at the spoken, but hadn't hadn't much. Uh, so he spent his time with that, and they thought he was really imbibing the stuff. And <laughs> they didn't tumble it until quite the end. But then uh, uh, Paddy Ron from Kilkenny, who was the best hurler in our time in college there in the fields. Uh, he he was in jail, of course. There were four of them around me who were in jail for a year and a half. And he was sent back to reflect, and he had to sit straight on the floor in the prison. And uh, he'd imagine he was playing in Croke Park. And he'd centre field, and he'd double the ball, and sent it over the bar, and he heard the crowd roar, you know. And he said he absolutely looked back, looked forward to those matches in, in jail. And he played in imagination, you know, and that kept him. It's extraordinary. Uh, yeah. You see, but he's extraordinary. Each man had his own way. Well, for me, I know that uh, I learned a lot by heart in school and college, you see. And, um, I mean, your big, uh, the big help was the prayers. And, and uh, then I'd, I'd remember the, the words of Christ in the, in the Bible, you see. And i go through those. Then, when I did that up, I'd have... Uh, I'd go through poetry or uh, anything. I remember one day, one and one, two, one and two, three, one and three, four. Anything to keep your mind away from that, because that was the the dangerous time that you could uh, crack up. And uh, when I'd have all that finished, I'd make up parodies on the commonness. I asked Michael to give us an example. <laughs> um, Oh yeah, up in Hanyang dances like that. <laughs> they asked an anthem. <laughs> I didn't make up this one myself, but uh, the, each uh, priest in the diocese contributed to uh, um, a parody, you see. And um, they, they all agreed on the last verse and the chorus. When we go to heaven, the whole jolly gang, St. Peter will know that we come from Hanyang. You say, step inside, boys, the best is your due. And those nuns from Hanyang, they can walk in with you. We're ramblers, we're gamblers, we're a long way from home. If you don't like us, just leave us alone. We starve and we're hungry, we thirst and we're dry. And if China doesn't kill us, we'll live till we die. But that was uh, the sort of thing, you know, that... Uh, but that would, um, I have a, a whole lot of them, you know, that I made up at different times. Maureen O'Sullivan, a Cork woman, joined the Dominican Sisters, and in 1953, her mission was to Cape Town. But here she tells us about her background. From a farming background, my father, Patrick O'Sullivan, had a farm um, near Carrigadrohut between Cork and McCroom and his family had been there for generations I, I've never been able to uh, get back to the to the beginning and my mother was a teacher who came from Kilmichael She arrived in South Africa during a time of great disturbance and social injustices when she found herself in charge of her congregation. This was the apartheid era and she broke all the rules by introducing uh, coloured children to her school and this caused a lot of trouble. Now, of course, that was a very, very interesting time uh, because that's the time when we opened our schools to all races in spite of the law, against the law. 
and we were the first order, first congregation in South Africa to do that. What was the result? Uh, how was it met? Well, uh, it began in Springfield in the house, the school that I had been in, but I was no longer in at that stage. And what happened was, it, it's a longer story now, I don't know if you have time for it, uh, we had two schools close to each other, one was coloured and one was white, Springfield, and the coloured school, excellent school, was full, and some children couldn't get in. And they said, we'll go up to Springfield, a bunch of them. And they came up to Springfield and they said, we can't get into Maculata School, will you take us? And they said, well, it's against the law. But they, they had some consultations and they said, we'll take you. And that's what happened. And that's what happened. So there was war, of course. There was murder. In what way? So, so they said, we'll take you in January, which was the beginning of the school year. And uh, seven, seven children, not of seven colored children, arrived. And within a short time, some parents complained to the department. And the inspector came out and he said, um, you're not allowed to have these children. And they said, they have no other school. And he said, well, you're not allowed to have them. Uh, I'd give me their names and addresses and the sister said no and um, so to make a long story short no, the no, conversation, no, in this, that conversation yes. went on between the mm -hmm. school and the Department of Education yeah. for the whole year mm -hmm. now Cape Town is was the more well, there were four provinces and Cape Town was one of the more liberal provinces so they didn't actually come out and threaten and say you know you can't open the school tomorrow yeah it was a private school so they weren't paying anyone okay so during that year uh, all the Dominicans all of us met and said well if Springfield can do it we can all do it Okay, right? so, yes. And decided that the following January, all our schools would be open and would take whoever applied, irrespective of race. And by that time, I was a regional superior. <laughs> but it, it, and all yes. hell broke loose. Yeah. It, you know, these were turbulent times. I mean, you can imagine. Then she found herself taking uh, a very important role. Uh, we were due a meeting with the Minister of Education called Kornhoff, and uh, there were four archbishops going to the meeting, and I was going, and a mercy sister and a, a Maris brother. And uh, I said to myself, if I could meet him before he meets all of them, uh, I might know what he's thinking. So I scribbled a note and I said, I know you're meeting the Catholic Church next week, but I'd love to meet you before then. And he rang me and he said, come down to my office. And I sat with him, just the two of us, and he began by saying, I like what you're doing. So straight away you had... We had, well, we had you, you knew, yes. I well, knew, go ahead, I yeah. knew. He said, I like what you're doing. I said, that's great. So what we do now? And he said, but we never get it past that crowd pointing over to the Houses of Parliament. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, so I said, so what what will we do? And he had been Minister of Sport before that, and he had uh, um, brought in a very clever scheme because they were very excluded from world sport, for instance. So he had tried to get them acceptable in the sports scene, and he had declared that certain hotels, for instance, would be international hotels, so that black people could could stay in them. So I said, maybe we could have international schools. And he said, well, we'll see, we'll find a way. <laughs> anyway, uh, a few days later, all the bishops gathered in our house, uh, preparing for the next day, and I said to them, you're not going to have any trouble, because he says he likes what we're doing. So they all relaxed and took it easy. And next day we went down to meet him, and we went in, and he stood. He sat at the top of the table, and he had all his minions on one side, uh, all Afrikaners, very dour-looking and serious, and then you had four archbishops and myself and a mercy sister and a Maris brother, and they began by saying, what you're doing is against the law. And the bishops, because they were the ones who were talking, they said, yes, but we have to do it. It's the right thing to do. And he said, but you can't do it in this country. You're breaking the law. And we went in at 2 o'clock, and at 5 o'clock he was still saying, you are breaking the law and you can't do it. There was persistence, obviously. And then he said, if you would like to go next door on your own and see what you plan to do, he said, but you cannot break the law in this country we will close your schools. So we went next door and we said, he's bluffing. And we're not going to move on this. Went back in and another two hours and at seven o'clock he said, well, I don't know what to do with you. He said, I'll just talk to the cabinet. Which was what he told me the day before. That he couldn't get it past parliament, but he would talk to the cabinet. Yeah. So... That's the inside story. The man is dead. Uh, I never said that when I was alive. Sister Columba O'Flaherty, all the way from... uh, To To Yes. Good. And I cycled to school every morning. This is an incredible story told by a presentation sister who was born in the first decade of the last century. And I, I... as a child, I loved music because I used to be down with my aunt who had a shop. And at night, the lads used to come in and play the melodeon and then they'd all take to the floor. And of course, even though I was only very small, I was out with them and I learned every dance I was to knew at the time. After entering the Presentation Sisters, she became one of the first of their missionary novices. And her mission was to India in 1936. And arriving in Bombay, her first assignment was dealing with the very poor, known as the untouchables. Now, as I said, they began began that in 1936, the year we we went out. This is the poor school now. We call it a poor school. And the next year, they had so many, they built two classrooms. And they, they migrated to the classrooms. Every year they were able to add two or three classrooms and today there are over 2,000 children in that school. Now those little ones that we brought in first were untouchables. Nobody would go near them. They're Volmikis. And so within 15 or 16 or 17 years, some of those little ones who were right there on the ground in 1936, 
They, they were able to do their matric. They trained as teachers or nurses. They did their JV, junior vernacular, or their senior vernacular, senior vernacular, what, what do you call it? So, I don't know what the equivalent would be here in Ireland. But uh, they would teach the higher classes. So these little ones who grew up, they became teachers, and they stood in front of a class, and nobody knew who they were. In 1947, her second mission was just as challenging when she was moved to the border between Pakistan and India. At this stage, the partition had arrived and here she was left with the uh, schools to open the schools to educate the, the, the locals there at the time. And she describes this in some detail. But first, she describes the position that she was in. After partition, I said we were divided, mm. and the families were divided yeah. in different sides of the border, and they couldn't had no contact with one another. And uh, then, when Pakistan was founded, and pa- the Pakistan were mostly zamindars, the people were the, the land was very fertile, so they were they were farmers. But they, they were delighted anyhow to for us to open schools to educate their children. So they gave us. 14 acres of land in Rosalpur for nothing for one rupee a year. We had just gone up to open the school in March 1947 and we had to, as we were going up the hills at a certain place there was a crowd of people and Mother said, what's on now? She said, there's something brewing, she said, here. And so we went on that day, so we went right up to the school. We went along there and the Tesseldar came in, the Tesseldar was the head man he says, I see, you knew Mother Philomena. And he said to her, Mother, don't worry, there'll be a little trouble. Don't worry, he said, we'll, we'll, you'll, you'll be all right. Now, that night, we, they, we got the children up to Murray. It was cold, and they'd come from the, from the heat, and they were miserable and all that. So we fed them and put them to bed. This was about nine o'clock at night. We were exhausted after the day's work. We were all sitting the fire for a little while in the other house, and there was another room, and the doorbell rang. And one of the sisters went out to open the door. Oh, it's a glory be to God, she says, Father, what's wrong? The sky was blood red. I said, it's all right, sister, don't worry, it's only Chikagoli on fire. Chikagoli was the name of the place about ten miles from us. But it was mountainous, so you could see the fire. She describes the burning of the villages all around them. That night... We went, we didn't sleep awake. We went from window to window, and you see flames here, flames there, thuds, beams falling down to the ground. You'd hear the crash, and you'd go from one window to another, and say, Oh, that's on fire, now we'll be the next. And so on. We, were too, we were worried this time about the children. We had only one Hindu the, that time in our school, only one. We were terrified in case anything would happen to And uh, we went. All night went round looking at every window, and no matter where you went, there was fires. That night, they burned 90, 95 houses in Murray belonging to the Hindus and Sikhs. Uh, Father Dan Fitzgerald, it's lovely to be here in Nina with you. Uh, you're now born in 1916, all those years ago. Where were you born, Dan? I was born in Cork City. Black Rock Road would be the address. I was the youngest, and there were two others older than me. His mission was China in the 1940s, and in 1949, the Communist Party arrived in Yangyang, and that's where he was 
and he describes here the mental torture which he himself endured at the hands of the People's Liberation Party. And then one evening, inside in the church compound, they had taken over the buildings, the school buildings and so on, and there in the play yard, I remember I saw a notice going up in Chinese, and with the help of a dictionary, I got the idea this has something to do with the trial. And I remember that evening, all the Chinese in the area were herded into the schoolyard, and there was an old platform put up, and these dozen or so fellows were let in and put up on the platform with soldiers around them. And I got then that this was a people's court, that these people were being tried by the people that were being herded in. And, of course, that was only a pretense because they were already decided on what was going to happen to them. But when the trial started, I remember, well, this man started reading out the charges. And he had gone two sentences when there was a cry, shout from the crowd, kill the so-and-so's, you see? And I said, God, what are they doing that for? Interrupting, they should be shot themselves, you see? Not at all, they were building up a tempo of a kind of mass. And those that were there shouting, they had to lift their hand and going around amongst them were the police. And anybody that didn't lift their hand and shout, they were tapped on the shoulder, you see. Oh, no, as I say, I remember well, there was the two of us that were together in those circumstances, we were under a kind of house arrest in this particular church compound. And the man that was with me was a father, Eugene Spencer. He was an American Columban in a late vocation, and a great character he was, too, God rest him. But I remember saying to him, "'Tis a pity, isn't it, that we'll never be able to tell people about this? I remember saying that to him that night, because it looked so terrible, you know. It was real hatred. And he said something that I always remembered. Well, I guess, he said, how could you expect anybody, what difference would it make, he says, how could you expect anybody to believe us? Morrow Donahue was born in County Clare in the 1930s. She visited some of the worst situations in the world and her experiences during her missionary days were just extraordinary. Her story starts in the county of Clare. Yes. Where are you from? I'm from County Clare, Kilfenora, where I was born. I went to school in uh, um, Kilfenora, Kilchani, actually, and then uh, secondary school presentation sisters in Armelic. I had two brothers and one sister. My uh, oldest brother was four years older than me, and my youngest sister was four years younger than me. And what was your dad doing for a living? He was a farmer, and uh, he... Uh, 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 worked on the farm and uh, my, my mother taught for a while One of her assignments was to Ethiopia during the revolution there and she was based for the four years during the famine 
and she describes here her healthcare responsibilities at that time. The famine situation, I was there for the uh, big famines of the 1980s. And I remember initially when I got involved, it was before I went to the Secretariat, uh, I was recovering from malaria and uh, I was in another diocese away from uh, our own mission, uh, convalescing. And I heard all these rumours about people dying. And I thought, I can't sit here with all these rumours going on, uh, people dying around me. So I said, I better get up and do a survey and get out there. So I did a survey, and uh, as a result of that, I was able to go to the the officials, the local administration, with figures and facts. And I said, you know, there's famine here. Now, the government did not want to admit that there was famine because this was 10 years after Haile Selassie was deposed. And he was deposed because he hadn't done anything for the famine then. And, of course, this famine was much worse, but they didn't want to admit that there was famine. So uh, they were, I think, afraid that I might go public. They said, who's this report for? So um, I think they were afraid I'd go public with it. So they said, what what are you going to do for it? Uh, We'll give you six bags of uh, milk, 50 kilos of milk. Uh, to start a program for 7,500 people and you can give us back the six bags of milk when you get it, when you get more. Yeah, yeah. So, so I was with the bishop, the local bishop. Yes, uh, yeah. As I say, I was in a different diocese and uh, I said, I'm not going to start any program with six bags of milk for 7,500 people and the bishop kicked me under the <laughs> onto the table to keep quiet. So, well, you see that they were atheistic uh, communists, socialists. So um, uh, uh, the, the uh, administrator looked at me and he said, and what are you going to do? He said, I'm going to Addis Ababa and see, can I get supplies before I start? Mm. So I went off and I started and uh, started begging and I got a Land Rover and I got uh, uh, cups and saucers and place to feed children and I got uh, uh, children's food and I got uh, other uh, food and yeah. I was able to come back and uh, I had to arrange for transport of course and get the money to to uh, to pay for the uh, transport of the, the supplies and all the rest of it for it was 250 kilometres to Addis Ababa the right. length of Ireland almost so uh, I got all that money and I got the supplies and started a program for the three peasant associations which were organised by the government that I was assigned to and uh, for 7,500 people. Of course, there were thousands there every morning when I went in. I would have to sit them down on the the, the school field, it was a school compound, school field with space in between to walk up and down and I had two uh, two others I had one nurse and I had two teachers with me uh, who were running a training school for kindergarten teaching I went over to them and I said you can't run this uh, while there's famine going on you know they, they should be out helping us <laughs> so I got the ten students and the two teachers to help me and two of us would walk up and down between the rows of people and select the people who had to get food today who couldn't survive another day without food. Maeve O'Sullivan, born in the 1920s, joined the Daughters of Charity and went on the missions working out in Nigeria. But first, in the 1940s, she spent many years working with handicapped children in Liverpool. 
Where did you come from originally? I'm from Kerry. I'm from southwest Kerry. Two sisters. But first, she talks about her background. And yeah. What did, uh, and your background then? Your your father. What did he do for a living? My father was a police guard sergeant in the old RIC. My mother was a teacher. My father had a farm. Um. My mother, she taught the other side of the bay, the other, the other side of Kinmare Bay. In Sneem. Yes, Sneem side of Kinmare Bay. Yeah. And how would she go there? Boat, rowing boat. My father was rowing across in a, in a rowing boat. Her time working in Liverpool with handicapped children lasted for the most of 40 years. But then, in 1985, as a social worker, she went to Nigeria. And after arriving there, her mission was working in prisons with the prisoners. But then I got involved in the prison. And my main work was in the prison. I was told to go, I was told to go and go and visit the prison. I said, what will I do in the prison? And they said, oh, just, just go. So I went and the, 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 prisons, the prisoners were in cells, single-story buildings, barbed wire in front, in front of them, and their poor hands coming out through the barbed wire, covered with ringworm and scabies and every kind of disease you could think of. And... Um, I thought, my God, what do I do here? What do I do here? The worst of the prisoners, or the worst, was the so-called suspected lunatics. They were people who were mad and who were in prison because they were mad. And they were at the bottom of the battle where, as, far as, as far as the prisoners concerned. They were dying of starvation. So I started, uh, gradually I built up a, a service for them where prisoners who were suffering from malnutrition, where, where they got uh, high-protein food to keep them alive. And as well as that, I got um, a service if they were falsely imprisoned, as they were sometimes, um, that to get solicitors to get them off, get them off their, their their sentence. I'll tell you about one man. He was chained to the floor in the one position for 12 years. First of all, his two feet were out straight and his two ankles riveted to the floor, so he couldn't even stand up. Then they gave him a bit of chain to chain his two chain his two ankles, and that chain riveted the floor so that he could stand up. And at first he was he was um, his muscles were kind of atrophied, but then after a while he he, he worked out how to undo his leg irons. And he used to creep around inside in his cell and lock himself up again when he heard somebody coming. But then one day he got mad and he just, with his two bare hands, he tore down the iron door of his cell. For that they beat him unmercifully. They broke his one of his legs and changed his broken leg to the floor. And here she talks about another prisoner 
that she looked after. And this doesn't make for easy listening. And in the end, after 11 years of working in that prison, she returned home suffering from health problems. Another man, suspected lunatic, another man, the other... He, he, one of the other prisoners gorged out one of his eyes. To get away from his tormentors, he used to climb, climb up into the rafters. For that, they pulled him down and chained him to the floor. I got him out of prison. At least every now and again, there'd be what you call amnesty, where they'd leave out some prisoners who hadn't anything, you know, hadn't done very much anyway. So he got left out under amnesty, that one, that man. And I got him taken back to his own village. I went to see him, I went to see him a few months later. And he came running into my arms and my driver said he was blowing big grammar. <laughs> now, all the time he was in prison, he never spoke, never spoke. And I had a theory in my head that it was the fact that when his eye was gorged out that it damaged his brain. Yeah. But it wasn't, because he could, he could talk anyway. Yeah. In the end, I got very sick and I was sent home. Um, and I wanted to go back. I didn't want to stay at home. And finally, we come to the last missionary story. And again, this is another fascinating story told by Brian Starkett. He joined the Spiritans and his mission was to Sierra Leone. He was born in the 1940s in County Offaly, as he tells us here. Born in a small town of Kilcormac, County Offaly. Oh, yes. Um, now, strangely enough, I was actually raised in Kerry. My my father was working with uh, Bordnamona. He was works manager in a place called Larricrampon. And after his ordination in 1974, his mission was Sierra Leone. I was uh, in a place called Pujan. That was my first assignment, uh, which was as far away from Freetown as you could possibly get uh, and close to the Liberian border. And we had a big secondary school there. It was quite a Muslim area itself, Pujan, but um, I was asked to go in as a teacher chaplain into the secondary school there. And I spent two years there, done my apprenticeship if you like uh, and once you're kind of in education you nearly stay in education it was yeah. you know what about the language though the language well the official language is English so the language of teaching was English the lingua franca of the country really is a creole language mm-hmm. which was developed by the, the slaves the returning slaves and would be the language in Freetown very much the Creoles, because the people that live in Freetown are called the Creoles. Uh, and after that, then you have the, the, the tribal languages, yeah, 
yeah. different tribes, about 16 different tribes in Sierra Leone. My, 16 yes. different languages. <laughs> but we, like I say, the teaching was all done through English. Brian's background was in teaching, but he very quickly turned his skills to setting up an agricultural school. Uh, but there was a developing interest in agriculture. Yeah. So I, I actually built an agricultural school. Oh, yes? Well, whatever you did, you had to call it agriculture. You know, once they say agriculture on a project proposal, they say, oh, this is, okay, we'll go with it. It was just education. So it was an agricultural secondary school. <laughs> but we had plenty of land and we were able to grow oil palms and we were able to grow rice and we had animal husbandry. We developed pigs and chickens and rabbits and all that sort of stuff. And if you were building a science lab, you said it was an agricultural science lab, you know. When you left there in, in six years after, you were there, you say, in, say in, in, with the school, year? yeah. With the school. Uh, 85 then. 85. I, I moved in then to the town of Bow. And what to, were you doing there? Um, there was an old teacher college, teacher training college there uh, that belonged to the, the archdiocese, and they asked me to, well, I set up a pastoral centre. Yeah. in this because the buildings were there and um, so that was a, a bit of a U-turn for me from secondary school education uh, uh, then going into setting up this pastoral centre which was a job I really enjoyed very very much When the war started in 91 and lasted over 10 years his involvement in peace and reconciliation activities as well as soldiers these are child soldiers and the program that he helped to set up for them is spoken about here. War started in 91. What uh, brought on that war? Well, I suppose... Is that a big question? It, 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 it is a big question, uh, but to try and put it in, 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 in simple terms, the civil war in Liberia began in 89, December 89, when Charles Taylor crossed over the border and uh, uh, now we always consider the Liberians to be aggressive, you know, so we say oh, that's, that's Liberia, you know but the Sierra Leoneans, they're so laid back and we I remember asking the question will, will the war spill over the border you know, mm. into Sierra Leone we said, oh no, the Sierra Leoneans are not like the Liberians, you know so, but we were totally wrong and even when the war did spill over the border were taken completely, and everybody was taken completely by, by surprise. Um, but it did, and uh, the war started in Sierra Leone. It, it lasted for 10 years. How bad was it? Um, it, was, it was bad, yes. Now, it wasn't a Rwanda, if you know what I mean. But, uh, and I'm not too sure exactly how many people lost their lives in the war in Sierra Leone. Probably close to maybe 100,000 or, or thereabouts. I, I don't know what the final... Figure but when you take people who were killed directly as a result of the war and people who died indirectly as a result of the war, yeah. you know, um, it could have been up to 150,000, I suppose. And in those 10 years when the war was on, I mean, did, did, did that... Uh, where were you and what were you doing? Now, I was still in Bow and I was still in the pastoral centre, but we couldn't operate the pastoral centre. Because the war came quite close. We were very close to the war front, particularly coming from the south. 
uh, maybe eight or nine miles. So a lot of the parishes had to close uh, and people fled. A lot of them ended up in, in camps. Uh, and we couldn't bring people into the centre for security reasons. So basically our work as a pastoral centre ceased. Uh, but because we were so close to the war and so many displaced people came into Bow, the pastoral centre where I was became a kind of a, a, a distribution centre, if you know what I mean, for, I do, yeah. for relief uh, yeah. supplies and humanitarian yeah. agencies. So I worked, I began, slowly. we had Liberian refugees before that. But the Liberian refugees were hosted by Sierra Leone families, okay? There weren't that many of them, might have been maybe about a couple of thousand. Yeah. But they were basically hosted by Sierra Leone families, so they weren't that obvious. But when the incursion into Sierra Leone happened and the war began to move very quickly towards Bo, uh, a lot of the Liberians left, but they were their place was taken by displaced Sierra Leoneans, okay? And at that stage, Bo couldn't contain them in the way the Liberians were hosted, so we had to set up a camp uh, for them, or a couple of camps, actually. And one of those camps uh, eventually had 80,000 um, displaced people in it, was just south of Bo, and I got involved in the coordination of that camp, um, for a couple of years. Yeah. Was your life ever uh, in danger or threatened? Or War is a, a strange kind of a thing. Looking back, yes, the answer is, is, is yes. But did I realise it at the time? Probably not, because you kind of grow with war. Uh, you learn not to take unnecessary risks, that's for sure. And you, I, I had to keep a close liaison with the army and with the police. And... They generally gave you good advice about mm. traveling mm. out of town uh, and that, and when it was safe and when it wasn't safe. Um, but yes, I, I remember being stopped one day in the middle of Bow by Liberian soldiers. There were Liberians there as well, and having an AK-47 put to the side of my head and told to get out uh, of my vehicle. We were going to take the, the vehicle out of oh, a pickup yeah. truck, you know. Yeah. And I was... I said, well, okay, Toyota make hundreds of these every year, thousands of these things every year. <laughs> Let them have it. And it was just by coincidence, two policemen were walking down the street. I mean, people just carried on walking, you know. They were as scared as I was, I suppose, you know. But one of the policemen came over and said, uh, no, leave this man. He's our friend. And, uh, and they give you the cheek back. And very reluctantly. Yeah. They gave it back, and but they were high on drugs. You see, that was one of the the dangers of, of the war. You just yeah. don't know if it, and at seven o'clock in the evening, it's late in the day, yeah. and these guys are well tanked up between alcohol and drugs, and you just don't know what they will do. You know. When did, what year did you set up that program? The, uh, the that was a program. It was actually set up by UNICEF, uh, and it must have been ninety three maybe around 92, 93, quite soon after the war began. And when did you become involved? You became involved in that then? In I did, because you had kids on both sides. You had kids on the rebel side. Well, we didn't have access to those, but we did have access to kids who worked with government soldiers. Yeah. Uh, and we were able to go to the army authorities and we were able to say to them, this is wrong. 
that these kids should because the kids the seven years of age, eight years of age, going around with AK-47s, you know, and uh, mm. dressed in army uniforms yeah. and stuff, you know. And but, uh, so they, they released 300 kids to us. Um, and who were these kids? Were they displaced? Were they... Had they, they families? They were a mixture. They probably, a lot of them wouldn't have come from the major towns because the major towns weren't that affected at that particular point in the war. They were from the outlying areas that might have been close to rebel lines where the army were and they would, maybe they had parents killed in the villages uh, or they would somehow link up with a soldier. It was a kind of a little progression, maybe sometimes for security, maybe sometimes for food, maybe sometimes, you know, and they would do odd jobs for a particular soldier, and then when the soldier got a new uniform, he'd give the old one to the kid, and the kid would go to the tailor and get it cut down to size, and, you know, um, that's okay. the way it happened, you know, kind yeah. of slowly but progressed, and the numbers were huge. Um, so they released 300 child soldiers to us under the auspices. You see, UNICEF are not an implementing agency. The fund, but they and they work with other agencies in terms of the implementation of programs, but they had nobody to run a program in child soldiers, so they asked the Catholic mission. What did you do with 300 uh, children that, that were offerings? We, we really, div divided them into uh, three homes, two in Freetown and one in Bow. So we had 100, and 100 plus kids in the place in Bow. We got what used to be a social welfare building uh, to house them and but we didn't know what to do with the kids you know what do you do with them and they're wild they're crazy you know uh, and violent you know it was a bit scary at the beginning we were lucky we had social workers from the, the government mm -hmm. now they were pretty hopeless we actually found it much better to recruit displaced teachers yeah, yeah. I imagine they were much better hands-on yeah. with the kids, you know, yeah. and be able to handle them much better. So we got displaced teachers that were in camps and brought them into the program. We were very fortunate to have a psychiatrist in Bow, a Dr. Maturi, who actually studied here in Dublin uh, in the College of Surgeons and had done psychiatry, and he was a big help to the program in, in, in being able to uh, uh, um, assess the kids and, and that kind of stuff. Food was supplied, was the money for the food was supplied by uh, UNICEF. and But UNICEF were all over the place as well. We said, look, we have to get these kids out of uniforms. So can you send up uh, second-hand clothes? They said, sure, we'll have them up here tomorrow. They sent up a truckload of second-hand clothes. And when we opened them, they were all girls' clothes. You know, yeah, yeah. they hadn't even checked. To, there was kids' clothes written on the bag, you know. But all the bags were girls' clothes, so we had to send them back down to Freetown. You know, there were things like that. Uh, it must be very frustrating at times. What about teaching these kids then? Um, well, they were difficult to teach um, because their attention span was like 15 minutes. You know, they were highly traumatized kids. Yeah, of uh, course. So you put them in a classroom and they'd be fine for 10 minutes and then something had happened and they'd be up and running around and shouting and, you know, you couldn't, very, very difficult to control. But it, as it was a residential program, after about three months, the level of hypertension or whatever you like to call it, or the level of trauma began to, to, settle, down to settle down a bit. Now, uh, I suppose some of the kids that were on that program should never have been on it because they would have 
joined the army and they, they were already into a life of crime and violence and stuff, you know. Uh, some of the, those kids came from Freetown, the streets of Freetown, and, and they had a very negative impact on the younger kids uh, with whom you could actually do something, you know. Yeah. Um, so that was a, a mistake, but it was a learning curve as well, you know. We didn't know that at the beginning, so... All right, but it was a huge challenge for you and, and for your uh, people there, yeah. Well, we've come to the end of this week's podcast, Irish Missionary Stories. If you would like to hear the full interviews of any of these recordings that you've just heard, they're available on our website, that's irishlifeandlore.com. My name is Maurice O'Keefe, and thank you for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.